that's probably where the council was held. It's underwater now, which may be indicative of the current state of Trinitarian <laughs> theology. But um, let's go on to the thanks. Next one. Um, these are a couple of dates that should sort of orient y'all with what we're looking at. We're mostly focusing on around like the 100 to uh, 381 period. Um, so uh, the council happens in 325. Before that, 313, Edict of Milan. This is when Constantine kind of starts getting Christianity being a little bit more cool with the empire. Um, Arius was born when it wasn't. Athanasius was also around when it wasn't, but not as much. Um, and I'll explain who these people are in a little bit. So, cool. So the background to what's happening prior to Nicaea are there are two different um, basic. Uh, well, there's the the basic question is how is God one and how is Jesus divine in relation to the Father and Spirit. Um, two basic uh, trajectories kind of opened up for the way different groups were talking about it. Um, first one is subordinationism, and the second one is modalism or civilianism. Now, when I say subordinationism, this has, um, I guess, uh, people will hear this, uh, you know, subordinationism is a heresy, this kind of thing. That's true in a certain sense. What I'm trying to get at when I use this phrase is basically an understanding that there is an order to God, um, and you'll see this evidenced in the way that people talk about um, yeah, Trinitarian theology before this. But these are the two different trajectories. Um, modalism or Sabellianism was basically saying God is God, and when we're talking about God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, just describe three different um, names for what God's doing. Um, we'll kind of see why this broke down, and ultimately it ended up with a subordinationist consensus out of which the Aryan uh, controversy arose. So, cool. Um, we'll skip Justin Martyr, actually. Uh, okay, cool. So, modalist tendencies. The modalist tendency reached a more extreme form in Sibelius, who got um, condemned ultimately. But again, it, it's, when we're talking about all these things, it's worth keeping in mind. This stuff is getting worked out on the ground. At various points, like a pope, bought into Sibelianism, he ultimately decided, maybe not, condemned Sibelius, but all this stuff is percolating. It's not like the church was like, well, we know what we teach on this, and then people are rising up and we're just kind of swatting them down. Not the way this is occurring. Um, so, at its worst, uh, Sibelianism is a tendency trying to uh, maintain unity at the, uh, the expense of distinction. Um, Hilary of Portier, who's like a theologian from earlier, um, said that modalism basically argues that the son is an extension of the father and faith in this regard is a matter of words rather than reality. Does that kind of make sense? What we're talking about with Sibelianism? Cool. Sorry, I'm trying to go fast because we have three, like 100 years to cover. But yeah, what, what were the questions? Um, go ahead, Madam. Can you, if you use the word mode, I find that helpful. It's modalism because instead of saying that there are three persons, you're just saying there are three different modes of God. Yeah. Thank you. So there, there's not real distinction. It's just, well, we name this... Like when, a mask. Yeah, exactly. But it's ultimately the same God. Um, the question, this just doesn't work with scripture. The questions this uh, can't answer would be, uh, when the Spirit descends upon Jesus at his baptism, is he descending on himself? Like, what's going on with that? 
when Jesus prays to the Father, is he simply take, talking to himself for the benefit of onlookers? <laughs> that's, I mean, but that's like actually the way the, the, yeah. the Sabellian position was kind of thinking about a lot of this. Um, another example, when Jesus says on the cross, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit, is he just putting his own spirit in his own hands? This Again, is, this is very helpful. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, simply put, this just flattens out scripture. It doesn't really make sense of the witness of scripture. And um, it's kind of superimposing concerns rooted in philosophical convictions around the time to um, fit scripture into that rather than, you know, take up philosophy and then transfigure it in light of the gospel. There's also a very strong conviction that there is one God. Right. And so yeah. I don't know, how do we make sense of this language? Right. So. Right. Um, so Origen, um, he's the one that kind of solidified the subordinationist position over and against the modalist one. Um, he was also the son of a martyr, one of, I would say, probably the two theological geniuses of the early church, the other one being Tertullian. Um, and you kind of see what the subordinationist position looks like in this next slide, and I'll just read this out. So the God and Father who holds the universe together is superior to every being that exists. For he imparts to each one from his own existence that which each one is. The Son, being less than the Father, is superior to rational creatures alone. For he is second to the Father. The Holy Spirit is less still, dwells within the saints alone. So in this way, the power of the Father is greater than that of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And that of the Son is more than the Holy Spirit. And in turn, the power of the Holy Spirit exceeds that of every other holy being. So, not really to unpack this too much in terms of what this means, but you basically get like an idea of some sort of order within the Godhead. Um, this one out over and against the Sabellian or the modalist tendency. Um, this doesn't matter too much that y'all uh, get a sense of what's going on here, but this is just sort of the, um, the groundwork for out of which Nicaea occurred. Um, so we have um, the hierarchy position went out over and against the modes. Um, so, origin system looks something like this, and um, this ultimately became the consensus um, huh, a little bit before um, Nicaea. So, kind of tracking? Yeah. Good deal. No. <laughs> I, mean, I yeah, understand yeah. what you're saying, yeah, yeah. but I have to be honest. I mean, I feel like that's saying, well, the Son is less important than the Father, and the Holy Spirit is less important than the Son. We don't believe this. This is just an example of the school of thought. Oh, okay. Thank yeah, you. We don't believe this. Because that, that bothers me a lot. Okay. I mean, this is like the beginning to where we are now. Like, right, yeah. because to me, the there's... There's unity. I right. Mean, it, it just, Jesus clearly said, I am one with the Father, and I am sending the Spirit. I'm asking the right. Father to send the Spirit. So they all have, it's like a, a holy dance. Right. In so the Godhead. So taking a step out of the historical thing over into the constructive side. Um, what I think Origen's trying to get at here, and again, this is all percolating in the water, is more that there's um, an order in the sense of when you just said, well, it seems like the, there's a unity, the Father sends the Son, and the Spirit. It's the sending, the begetting, the spirating of the Spirit that I think Origen is trying to uh, get.
get towards. Okay. Um, but again, this is all just in development right now. So it's not like we, I mean, when you read Origen, it's really weird. Um, honestly, he says stuff that theologians now wouldn't say. None of this stuff was worked out. If you read his stuff on angels, it's wild, um, a lot of fun. But like just weird stuff. Things are um, in the water. Um, things haven't been worked out. Um, theology, in a sense, hasn't really been invented. Um, but I'll explain what that means in a second. So, so you're talking um, about historical background. Yes, just historical background. Um, I, think, I think, sorry. Yeah. Just, I think to really add more clarity, what Hogan is talking about is early, early, early on, there was no theology. Jesus came, he died, and now we're trying to figure out. Some people didn't even know if he was really God. I mean, we understand this perfectly now, but back then, these were brand new questions. Is Jesus equal to the Father? I mean, these are all the right. And so he's giving us a layout of some of the schools of thought that were occurring at that time that brought us to the Nicene Council. Okay. Does that that's, make sense? That's helpful. Good deal. That, Sorry for jumping I'm, over a couple of I'm things. understanding kind of what we're doing. Yeah. Cool. Um, yeah, but that, that's, that's extremely helpful because, um, like, you have a certain unanimity in the churches. Um, we worship Jesus. That was pretty well established. A couple people on the fringes kind of veered off, but that was swatted down pretty quickly. Um, but like when we're talking about Arianism, um, origin, all these people, these people pretty much would go to the church, churches together, um, or the churches were in communion. Ultimately, questions arose over, well, we're all doing this, and we're not really sure what this means, and that's more what these people are on about. Okay, right? not just what it means, but how to describe it, maybe. Yes, that's the yeah, that's the better way of putting it. So pro so we have the subordinationist consensus, and then some problems start to emerge within this. Are the Son and the Spirit to be thought of as beings created by God, like angels or humans or other creatures? When I say creatures, creature just etymologically means created. So like tables, creature, I'm a creature, the earth is creature, time is creature. That's a little bit more confusing, but um, relevant in a little bit. So, or are all of, uh, the Son and the Spirit, like God the Father, and uncreated? These are questions that start to arise within the subordinationist paradigm. Um, another one would be, if they, are, if they are Son and Spirit creatures, how is it that Christians could claim to find salvation, the sole prerogative of God, in Jesus through the Spirit? Right. So these are the sorts of questions arising, right? Everyone's on the same page. Well, we worship Jesus, but... How how's that work? Um, another one, how can Christians worship the Son and Spirit without falling into idolatry? Um, this relates to the question Amy brought up earlier. You know, God is one. We're still affirming the Shema. Marcionism's been like, no, not cool. Um, we're holding on to the Old Testament. There's not um, contradiction there. But how do we maintain that? Um, another one, if the Son and the Spirit are not creatures, um, again, that just means created, there are three uncreated divine beings. In what sense are Christians still monotheists? Same kind of question. So now Arius hits the scene. Um, yes? So basically, if you're trying to hold together unity and distinction, it's really easy to go too far in one direction or the other. And they went too far into, into unity by saying modalism, and now maybe they're going too far into distinction and having to overcorrect a little. Yeah. Fair. Um, yeah, yeah. So um, a little bit of historical background to Arius. Arius was um, a priest or a presbyter at the time in um, a diocese. Alexander is his bishop. Um, 
And Athanasius is another um, deacon at the time in the diocese. Um, and I'm using these words a little bit anachronistically, but um, it kind of like connotes something of what's going on. Um, so that's, that's the setup. Um, so Arius, who was really far better educated theologically in, in terms of philosophy and scripture than um, Alexander or Arius, starts uh, going on about um, a way of clarifying the questions that I had in the previous slide, um, how to deal with all these tensions. So Arius claims that the Son and the Spirit were creatures, are creatures created by God, and therefore the Father alone is truly God. Um, he's not saying they're not God, they're just not totally God, they're like God, but not really. Um, so keep in mind, this sounds very similar to what Origen was teaching. All these things could be understood as developments of what came before, um, and that's why there were controversies. People didn't really know how to adjudicate clearly. It's not like, well, you know, we always knew what was going on, and the council just dropped from on high, and that kind of thing. Um, which is a tendency within Catholic circles for Catholics to approach this as kind of a fortress mentality that makes sense. Like, well, you know, the church always knew the truth and just, you know, Marcionites popped up, Gnostics popped up, Arians popped up, swide down, Protestants popped up and down. It's not the way that happened. Um, okay, so created or uncreated, where to draw the line? This is the main question that Arius is trying to answer. This chart kind of gets at. Mm -hmm. um, so keep in mind the origin chart, how this looked. Mm -hmm. Arius basically said, well, the line is somewhere between the Father and the Son and Spirit. Um, and then everything else falls out from there. Um, so moving on to the next thing. So why was Arius arguing for this? His chief concern was the freedom of God. He wanted to hold on to this. He wanted to figure out how to way to articulate the word in such a way that it preserved God from being conditioned or affected by the created order. An election, temporality, matter, time, that kind of thing. Um, thus, he reflected on God's will as unconstrained by the Logos. Um, the Logos was the mediator in the origin conception. Um, the Logos, the word, the sun, goes in between God back there and um, Creation. So, Origen's concern is if we start talking about the Word, the Logos, the Son as God, then God seems to be bound up in what's going on in creation in such a way that God's not immutable and changing, that kind of thing. Valid concern. It makes sense. Um, so, Origen wants to preserve God from being affected by anything created. Um, for God's will to be unconstrained, God and the Logos need to be distinct. Are we kind of tracking with where Origins go, or excuse me, Arius is going on this? Mm -hmm. Cool. Um, so Arius rightly notes that if there isn't a distinction, then everything in creation is, in some sense, constitutive or affecting God's being, divine being. Um, so, insofar as right, so the, the reason why this would be the case is we affirm that God became incarnate in some way. People are on board with this. Something that was like God became man, but then does that mean God's changing? Um, is God like currently, you know, a process of becoming, changing, affected by becoming human, died on the cross, rose again, but, you know, still at the right hand of the Father, does that mean God's changing? That's kind of the concern. So Arius um, thought that by claiming that the Son was God, which was what Alexander and Athanasius, bishop and co-minister, and the area um, thought 
um, that they were compromising either divine freedom, God's freedom to choose because by becoming incarnate, God was fixed or God was being constrained by creation. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So great. Um, or else divine unknowability because God no longer is beyond human knowledge. You know, in the Old Testament, we have this concept of Yahweh unutterable naming. God suddenly named. Does that mean that we're like remaking God in our image by calling worshiping Jesus as though Jesus is the Father? Is what Arius is going on about? Does this kind of make sense? No. Okay. So um, Arius affirms that there was a time when the word was not. That's the key thing. Um, Arius in that uh, diagram, I think, which I have on the next thing. Um, no, it was, it was in the next slide. Um, anyways, uh, there was a time when the word, the sun, was not. That's the line between created and uncreated. Um, Origen, or excuse me, Arius wants to put the sun inside of time in order to make a distinction between the father and the son, the logos, who mediates in order to preserve God the father from corruption um, and getting bound up in creation. So that's kind of what's going on. So um, now I'm going to take a step back. We kind of know how this played out, right? Arius lost. Nicaea affirmed something like Athanasius and Bishop Alexander's position. And um, this is worth now reflecting on the nature of orthodoxy in light of this. Um, so Arius was, wasn't, you know, thinking he was just renegade, going ahead, developing stuff. He was trying to be faithful to scripture, to what he thought the church taught, all of this kind of thing. Um, and he decided the terms, ultimately, that what Athanasius, Alexander, and Nicaea articulated, the terms or the playing field that they would articulate that in. That's just worth thinking about the way the church uh, develops her thinking um, which is usually in response to things that pop up and they're like, well, I'm not sure. I'm not sure that's the right way of framing it even, but since you did frame it that way, we're going to try to respond within that paradigm. That makes things difficult for us moving forward and thinking about the past, how that interacts with the present, and then how that informs our life going forward. Um, but that's maybe something to just keep on the back burner for now. So um, going back to a little bit more historical context with Nicaea, what's going on with the empire and the relation to Christianity right now? Um, the Roman Empire had been dividing into two main parts, Eastern and Western. It's ruled by four different people. Um, Constantine was kind of freaking out about like, well, it seems like the empire may be falling apart. Um, Thomas mentioned last week or last retreat, um, you know, there's the whole military battle. He maybe saw the Cairo and was like, cool, Christianity. Um, I have no idea about, you know, the validity or not of that. I'm not trying to speculate on that. But um, he ultimately thought that Christianity could be the glue that held the empire together. Um, so he does the Edict of Milan, um, trying to grant legal status and hope it, hopes this can, um, yeah, kind of build a consensus. So then when, like, Athanasius and Arius start fighting and this fight breaks out, Big. He's like, come on, guys. Like, this isn't why I, you know, got y'all here. We need to solidify stuff. We need to get the empire stable. We need to move on. That kind of thing. So he ultimately ends up calling the Council of Nicaea. And again, to illustrate the messiness of what's going on on the ground, the dissenting parties are trying to get a hold of the emperor to, you know, wield um, political heft in order to rein in um, or like weigh in on the outcome of the council. There's a council before this that meets that. 
comes to a different conclusion. Really messy. Um, so the whole the thing that the council produces is a creed. What is that? What's going on there? Um, well, creeds kind of had a um, a precedent beforehand in just the worshiping life of the church. And this is the right way of thinking about creeds in the context of worship. Um, there were baptismal formulas, creedal-like statements that were used um, when people became Christians for baptism. They were used in the function of worship. So it's not like Nicaea invented that out of the air. Um, they kind of took a stock of what was going on, where the church is doing. Um, people, all the bishops came, hashing it out, and... Um, they're trying to figure out how to clarify key questions being raised by the Arian controversy and the creed. So, um, yeah, again, place the Nicene controversy not as this like abstract theological debate. It's specifically located in the worshiping context of the churches. Um, so, 325 Creed, which, as Thomas pointed out in the last retreat, is not what we just said. That's the Nicene Constantinopolitan Creed um, in 381. But um, the key thing here is Nicaea, 325, sided with Athanasius and Alexander. What they opted for was this word right here, homoousios or homoousion. To break that down, that um, homo, same, ousios, being or substance. God the Father of the same being or substance with the Word and the Holy Spirit. So we're not getting into this whole Aryan construal where, like, similar being, homoousios was a word occasionally used, um, of similar substance and being, but not the same. They're clearly affirming it's the same. Um, so that's one of the key things. And then we have this anathema in the back, or in the bottom, which um, condemns the Aryan position. Those who say there was a time when he was not, that was explicitly what Arius said, and he was not before he was made, what Arius was saying with the time thing, he was made out of nothing, not true because he was eternally begotten with the Father, um, or he is of another substance, essence, homoi, usias, similar but not same, that's what that's trying to get at. Um, but if you'll, right, so, uh, if you'll notice, it says begotten, not made. And this is where we're coming back into the uh, hierarchy bit. We're still holding, trying to hold on to that. There's some sort of sense of order. So hierarchy goes wrong insofar as what Athanasius was very concerned about was actually um, idolatry also. It wasn't just a concern Arius had. Um, when we superimpose our human concepts onto God, that goes wrong insofar as God created the human concepts. So analogy should be at play. There's some sort of similarity between the way we see hierarchy occur on earth and the way the Godhead is, but that, that's an analogy. It breaks down ultimately upon the created, uncreated line, right? So when we talk about being begotten, that's a sense of order. Um, that's a sense of, um, yeah, the, the Father sends, as you said earlier, the Son is the one sent, the Holy Spirit is the love between, you know, there's a bunch of different ways of talking about that, but ultimately these are going to break down insofar as God is beyond human. Um, uh, is that the full 325-3? That's the full one, yeah. Okay. It's pretty short. I mean, it's, it's funny because when you see the Holy Spirit, there's like, yeah, cool, <laughs> sure. Um, just one line. Um, so you clearly see, but this is the background, what I'm trying to basically get at is 
why, why was there such a big chunk for the son? So everyone's on the same page with the father. The father seemed to make everything. And then we have all this. And Wright's going to unpack this line by line. Um, but th this is why there was so much stuff in the middle. Um, that key line is the only begotten. Um, so that's saying, yes, there is order, your right area, something like order, but that order doesn't cross the line from created to uncreated. Um, yeah, exactly. So this is what Nicaea is on about. The father is um, unbegotten, the son is begotten, the spirit isn't begotten, but something like begotten. But are we all kind of tracking here with like the gist of where these are going? Yes. Okay, cool. like what was going on um, words ultimately lose um, their ability to grasp God on some level and this led to a lot of confusion about what other positions had um, a brief aside uh, that again kind of illustrates the messiness of um, just the way doctrine develops and the church's thinking develops on this um, if you fast forward it little bit. Um, there's another heresy that pops up, Nestorianism. Scholars looking now back on what Nestorius wrote, what the church was condemning. They're like, well, it actually probably doesn't seem like anyone was a Nestorian, including Nestorius. Um, the church condemned something, to be clear, and they're like, yeah, we're not down with this, but it's incredibly unclear on what's um, being condemned, and it's, it's, I mean, just theology is tricky. Um, so anyways, maybe that was more confusing than not. But homoousion or homoousios, that's the key um, phrase that the council lands on in order to sort of navigate this whole mess. Um, it's an extra biblical word not found in scripture, but the whole point of it is that it's trying to preserve the mystery of scripture through clarification. Because um, the problem that people are realizing is, well, referencing scripture in order to understand scripture kind of doesn't always um, clarify what is wrong with certain interpretations of scripture, but I'll unpack that in a little bit. Um, so Athanasius' argument um, and his concern, again, situate this in the context of worship, is soteriological. That just means concerned with salvation. Um, so how we're saved, how's God do this? Um, sin had made humanity subject to suffering and death because it involved a turning away from God, who is the source of life. Christ saves us by uniting our nature to the divine nature. 
so that we may become, as 2 Peter 2, 4 says, participants in the divine nature. Does this make sense? So yeah, we'll, we'll probably we'll yeah. deal more with this later. Cool, yeah. Um, so what does soteriology have to do with homoousius? Um, Christ can't make us participants in that which he does not truly possess, the divine nature. If Christ can't save us, if he, he can't save us if he's not divine, which everyone does agree that he does, everyone's on the same page with worshiping God, uh, Jesus, um, then the word must be homoousian with the Father. That's Athanasius' argument. Um, Arius doesn't see it the same way. He's like, well, I mean, no, I'm on the same page with worshiping Jesus, but I don't think your soteriological puzzle works, if that makes sense. The way you're thinking about salvation, I don't think that's the only way. Um, so Athanasius' argument is you can't give what you don't have. Um, but what about Arius' concern? Um, I'm just going to read this quickly. If this, There's a couple key phrases in this. This is from Rowan Williams' really good book on Arius. Um, it's maybe a little bit too in the, the bushes or the weeds, but uh, here we go. So Athanasius refused to separate the divine will from the divine nature in considering the generation of the Son. So the divine will is that... Um, God wills as one, and the divine nature is that God is homoousias with the Father. Um, okay, so this is an implicit denial that God's nature can be an object of thought in and of itself. This is um, Arius' concern with divine unknowability um, being compromised by articulating the Son as um, the same substance and mixed up in creation. Um, okay, you know, let, let's skip this and move on to the next one. Um, so the reception of Nicaea um, didn't go too well, to be honest. It was pretty much a mess afterwards. Um, everyone agreed on whom we even people that kind of were like, well, maybe Arius was right, signed on to the statement, and then kind of flip-flopped on whether or not um, homoousios was going back into, we're in the setup between subordinationism and modalism. People were like, well, this is starting to sound modalist again. It seems like there's a reality of distinction that we're losing grasp of by opting for... Um, Homoousios. I don't think there's a real distinction there. So Alexander dies pretty shortly after the council. Athanasius got exiled repeatedly from his diocese. Big mess. Christians, let's try not to do this moving forward with theological controversy. It was not good. Um, I mean, what's the prayer of CTR? We'll know Jesus by our unity. We're doing a great job. Um, real concerns, but like, let's figure out how to maybe not have these arguments be so messy. Um, so as soon as the council was over, people began worrying. Yeah, I already said that. Um, so it's not until 381 that this controversy really gets uh, vindicated. This is the 381 um, creed. Um, I'll let Wright explain that. So we'll move along to the takeaways, and then I'll try to answer any questions. I hope I didn't run too much over on time. Um, so let's not abstract the creed from the liturgical life of the church. The creed can only be understood rightly, both historically and in the present, when understood within its proper context, which is worship. This whole concern arose out of wanting to figure out what's going on with worship. Um, are we idolatry, or are we are we veering into idolatry by saying that God either is the same as the Word or isn't? That's the concern. Um, also, I didn't finish the second point, but it wasn't a top-down hierarchical of like, you know, swatting Marcionism, Gnosticism, Arianism, not the way these things occurred. Um, last, uh, second to last one would be extra-biblical. Um, some of the, the bishops at the council were actually concerned about this. They were like, well, we're using a word that's not in scripture to, 
clarify scripture. Is this, is this cool? Um, so, and what Athanasius and Alexander and the church ultimately landed on is the word is used in order to preserve the mystery of God found in scripture. New theological language was necessary in order to meet the theological needs brought about by the recent challenges to the church's faith. Um, Pope Benedict put this question well. When people raise questions, you can't make the questions go away and you have to like answer them. So um, yeah, that's what's going on here. Um, and the person who taught me about all of this is Dan Williams, who's an evangelical Baptist pastor that I love a lot. He spent a couple of years in um, Loyola teaching Jesuits and is just very happy to be in Texas now. Um, but he said, uh, one of the crucial lessons learned during the Aryan controversy was that in order to achieve doctrinal orthodoxy, you can't interpret the Bible from the Bible alone. The church needed a vocabulary and a conceptual framework that stemmed from the Bible, but were also consistent outside of the Bible, or excuse me, stemmed from the Bible, but were also outside of the Bible. Sooner or later, some means of interpreting the scriptural text would be required. Um, and one of my other professors put it this way, and I think this is what I've been trying to get at with the messiness of the church, um, Developing doctrine. Arius saw the need for the church to say a new thing, or as Rowan Williams says, it is with Nicaea that the need for theology is established. Um, again, before this, theology hadn't really been happening in the way that we now think about it. It is a challenge that Athanasius took up defending homoousias by displaying the way continuity with the church was found, paradoxically, not in a wooden loyalty but in reflecting on the sacramental life and the proclamation of the church, so as to say something new. Something new in order to hold on to what we had always been saying. Um, thus, critical assessment must not be displaced from the individual, for it is through the engagement of her critical capacities that the church discerns how to be faithful in a new age. We can't just regurgitate old formulas. We have to say something new in order to maintain fidelity to what's old. Um, uh, anyways, uh, so as Williams write, loyalty to how the church has defined its norms must contain a clear awareness of the slow and often ambivalent nature of the processes of definition if we are to avoid supposing that the history of doctrine is not really history at all and that contemporary right belief has no connection with conditioning by a specific past and present. Things don't just drop on high. Um, that's not how that works. Scott became incarnate. Um, scripture has a whole messy history. These are God and God's word. But the way they come to us is through history. And the councils aren't dropping down like axiomatic statements that can just be taken in some sort of scientific formula to like produce theological truths. That's just the bit I'm trying to get at. Um, there's a tendency in both um, certain forms of Catholicism especially to think that um, Fortress mentality, we hold all the truth, nothing else, swine down all this heresy. Um, analog, I think, in certain forms of Protestantism with um, certain approaches to scripture where, well, we don't interpret it, scripture just says stuff. Clearly not the case. Um, <laughs> just this whole mess was, yeah, occasioned by, you know, trying to figure out what a certain verse in Proverbs was saying. So, yeah, that's, um, I hope, clear enough. If there are any questions, I don't know how much I ran over on time.